those whose struggle is not against flesh and blood, those who understand you. And we are taking every thought captive to the knowledge of Christ. Lord, I pray that you protect these, your people, by means of your word, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would use these moments that we have together to do that. In Christ's name. As I begin this morning, uh, the brothers in the back have gifts for you, uh, and I would invite you to take that and um, and make use of it as we as we make our way through the sermon this morning. I would also invite you to open the Bible to Genesis chapter thirty-six. Although I confess that we are not going to spend as much time looking directly at Genesis thirty-six as we have looked at other chapters of Genesis, mainly because what we have here is simply a list of names, and um, I don't, I, I think we can profitably use our time thinking about everything that we've seen in Genesis to this point, and about the way that this chapter functions in the book of Genesis, and I think that'll be better for us than making our way through the list of uh, Esau's descendants and, and uh, his wives and uh, the chiefs of the Horites and so forth. So, um, as we begin, um, I want to invite you to think with me about what we've learned in the book of Genesis to this point. And, and as we think about this, I also, and the reason you've received this handout, is because I want you to think about what kind of book Genesis is. And, and really the point of this is for us to recognize that God has given us a book. God has given us a book, and that book is meant to build our brains. And that book is meant, this book, the Bible, the first book of which is Genesis, is meant to function like these spectacles function for me. I take these glasses off, and I see blurry faces. And I can't tell if you're smiling or frowning or sleeping, but I put these frames on, I put these lenses on, and now I can see the corners of your mouth, and I can see, you know, your eyes, whether they're open or closed. I can actually look at you, whereas if it's this way, I can't really see much of anything. I mean, I can't even see the color of my own son in the front row. I can't see his eyes. I'm, my eyes are that bad. So, but now I can, and that's the way the Bible is meant to function. The Bible is meant to give us eyes to see the world. And so what I'd like for, for us to, to do this morning is I, I want to try to think with you about ways that many in our culture are thinking about the world 
and then compare that with the way that the book of Genesis presents the world. The, the book of Genesis and really the rest of the Bible presents the world. And to set this up, I just want to read to you a few statements from Carl Truman's recent book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And I would recommend this book to you. It is uh, profoundly significant for understanding our culture and for understanding the way that our contemporaries are thinking about the world, for understanding the way that, um, the way that things are put and the way that people respond to what's going on in the culture. So um, Truman is really seeking to explain how it is that we have things like gay marriage, how it is that we have this, this phenomenon of these people who, con who consider themselves to be transgender. Males, for instance, who think that they are men on the outside, on the surface, but women on the inside. How is it that that is a plausible idea in our culture? And then what does it mean that provisions are being made for such claims in the law so that schools and uh, businesses are providing bathrooms for this kind of situation and making other sorts of provisions. So uh, Truman writes this. He says, when we start to think about sexual morality, so, you know, the Bible has one set of moral norms about what people should think about themselves sexually, and then we've got a very different set of moral norms operative in our world today. Truman says when we start to think about sexual morality today, we need to understand that we are actually thinking about what it means to be human. What it means to be human, okay? And in a, in a moment, as we start to think about the book of Genesis, we'll see that Genesis is very clear about what it means to be human. But I, I want to spend some time here thinking about what our culture thinks it means to be human. And um, Truman goes on, and um, in, in this book, he's really laid a foundation where what it fundamentally means to be human has to do with, with psychological concerns. This, this book is really outlining and exploring the way that everything in our culture has been psychologized with the result that, that things like words and ideas are considered to be harmful for the psychological damage that they do to people. And the reason I'm talking about this is because I want you to understand what you see on television and what you hear from the news and even the things that people around you are saying when they start talking about concepts like harm or oppression or, or these kinds of ideas. We, we have to understand how people are thinking about these concepts. So these categories of harm and oppression today are largely psychological categories in, in the current discourse because people are largely considered in psychological con uh, terms. And Fruman goes on to say that what's happened, and, and here I'm just reading from, from his book, he says, Freud's basic insight that sexual desire is constitutive of identity. In other words, what you fundamentally are as a human being comes down to your psychology, and, your, and, and then that psychology 
comes down to sexual desire. Freud's basic insight that sexual desire is constitutive of identity. That's what makes you a human being, what you desire sexually. And that's true from infancy onward, is therefore a watershed. And then he, he goes on and he says, any attempt to corral sexual behavior, corralling sexual behavior saying this or that kind of desire is immoral, this or that kind of activity is immoral, any attempt to do that, he says, is then rendered an oppressive move. So it's oppressive to say to people, that kind of behavior is immoral. Uh, this kind of desire is immoral. That is now viewed as oppressive because of the way that we have psychologized and sexualized human identity. And then there's another step that is taken where all of this becomes politicized and this is this is evident in the way that I mean maybe you've maybe you've heard in our culture how people will say we used to have non-political activities you know it used to be that sports for instance were non-political activities you could watch a basketball game you could watch a baseball game you could think about the major league baseball all-star game and it didn't have to be tied up with politics well now everything is political and and Truman says any attempts to set such limits based on the intrinsic nature of certain sexual acts are ultimately arbitrary and politically motivated. Everything has become political because everything has become psychological and everything has become sexual and then the extension of that is everything is now political. And for the people who, who take this view of the world, for them, for you to advocate the status quo, for you to say something like, no, that, that used to be a non-political activity. For them, that's actually political because advocacy for the status quo is oppressive. This is the way that our, our contemporaries are, are thinking about these things. And if we ask these basic questions, if we say, what is the world? For many of our contemporaries, the world is not a sacred place because the world does not have a creator who has given it a sacred quality. So we just want to say the, the wor people, people in the culture who think in these terms, in terms of psychology and sexuality and politics and oppression and all of this, they're not thinking in terms of God made the world and the world is therefore a sacred place. We want to think carefully about this. We want to understand how they're thinking about the world. And we want to affirm what the Bible teaches, which is that, yes, God made the world in accordance with the way that, that the Bible describes. What is a human being? Well, for Darwin, a human being is evolved from nothing. For uh, Freud, a human being is fundamentally uh, sexual and and. Your desire, the nature of your desire, is what determines who you are. And, and it's oppressive to tell people that their desires are inappropriate or immoral. And then if we go from there and we say, uh, what is marriage? Well, for Marx, marriage was legalized prostitution. Marriage was just another expression of oppression and, and these uh, abusive ideas. That is not what is presented to us in the pages of Scripture. 
Um, so, so what I want us to do this morning, the reason, the reason I'm talking about this is because I understand that when you come to the book of Genesis and you come to a chapter like Genesis 36, it's a list of names. And if you're like me, you ask the question, why is this here? Why would Moses think it relevant to give me something like 73 names of people who descend from Esau? What does that have to do with anything? How is that supposed to help me know God? And the reason we're asking that question is because this book was not written in our culture. And, and this, it's, like, it's like walking into a massive cathedral, and we don't understand the stained glass windows, and we don't understand what the pillars are doing. We don't understand the architecture of the building, and so we don't see its beauty, and we don't see what it's symbolizing. So what I want to try to do this morning is address or, or juxtapose the ideas current in our culture with, with the structure of the book of Genesis and what it's teaching in the hope that having thought through these things with me, you'll, you'll begin to see the beauty of the book of Genesis and you'll feel the force of the truth of the claims that are being made in this book. And, and as you read it, it will make sense to you. Okay, so at this point, I would invite you to take up this uh, piece of paper that you were ha hopefully handled, hand handed that says the chiastic structure of Genesis. And I want to start by drawing your attention to the way that certain lines in this are in purple. So like the very first line, uh, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, uh, that, that is uh, colored purple. And I, I would invite you to maybe make a note for yourself or just associate in your mind the word blessing with the color purple. And in part, the color purple is there because uh, we associate purple with royalty, uh, you know, kings, often wear purple robes when they were mocking the Lord Jesus. They put a purple robe on him to mock him and, and, and as, though he, as though he's claiming to be a king, you know, and look at, we're going to crucify this king and clothe him in purple in mockery, this kind of thing. Um, the, the, big, the big thing that I want you to associate here, not, I mean, obviously creation is important. I've just talked about that. But I want you to think of Genesis 1, verse 28. And... I would encourage you, if you don't have Genesis 1.28 memorized, that's a great verse to memorize. Genesis 1.28 reads, right after 1.27, God created man in his own image, which, okay, what, what's a human being? For our culture, it, it's an evolved organism with no sacred significance. What's a human being in the scriptures? God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Uh, for the, uh, Carl Truman uh, deals with uh, this thinker named um, Simone uh, de Beauvoir, I believe is how you say the name, um, and, and he details the way that this, this thinker advocated, and, and this really informs the transgenderism that we're seeing in our culture. This is, what, uh, tr this is how Truman summarizes de Beauvoir's thought. thought. The body is something to be overcome. Its authority is to be rejected. Biology is to be transcended by the use of technology. In other words, if you feel like you're a woman on the inside and you're a man on the outside, well, we have technology that can overcome the biology. 
that, that's, what, that's what's being said here. Who or what a woman really is is not her chromosomes or her physiology. Rather, it is something that she becomes either as an act of free choice or because society coerces her into conformity with its expectations. We need to hear that, recognize what's being said, and say, no, the scriptures say that God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. God made male and female. And then verse 28, God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So having dominion over the earth starts with, with God blessing man. So we start with Adam here uh, in Genesis 1, and God has blessed him and given him dominion. Um, your next purple line is in Genesis 12, 1 through 9. And I'm not going to read those verses. I just want to say that the, the promise to Abraham that God would bless him, that God would make him into a great nation, that God would make his name great, that all the families of the earth would be blessed in him. That's continuing this theme of God's blessing. And then um, uh, we've, we've been talking about how uh, there are parts of the book of Genesis that correspond to one another. I would invite you to, if you look further down and you find uh, Genesis 35 down, down in this thing, um, and, and the text reads, God's promise to Jacob and Rachel dies birthing Benjamin. Uh, you may remember a couple of weeks ago when we were in Genesis 35, we looked at that passage and we saw how God promised to Jacob that kings would come from him. So what I'm suggesting to you is that this, this huge central section of the book of Genesis is in a way bracketed by God's blessing of Abraham in Genesis 12 and then his blessing of Jacob in Genesis 35. Now, what is this blessing about? Let's think again about Genesis 1.28. With this blessing, God is promising life in his presence in Eden. That's, that's what God wants for humanity when he creates humanity. He creates a very good world. He puts man in the Garden of Eden. He bestows his blessing upon man. Life in the presence of God in Eden obeying Genesis 1.28, which means be fruitful and multiply and fill the world with those who bear God's image. So God doesn't envision a prob problem of overpopulation. God wants the world filled with his image bearers because everywhere there's an image bearer, there's a reflection of God's glory. And everywhere there's an image bearer, there's someone who is bringing God's character to bear in all creation. This is the way that the Bible is presenting these things. And then if, if we think through the contents of the book of Genesis, this starts with Adam. God blesses Adam. And then we move to Jacob. Uh, I'm sorry, Abraham. Genesis 12, 1 through 9. God blesses Abraham. And then Jacob. God blesses uh, Jacob, as, we, as I've just alluded to in uh, Genesis 35. And then we're going to see, as we continue through the book of Genesis, that in chapters 48 and 49, so if you, if you look down near the bottom of the sheet, 48, 1 through 49, 27, Jacob is going to bless the sons of Joseph, 
And then he's also going to bless significantly both Joseph and Judah in Genesis chapter 49. And all of these blessings, what I'm suggesting to you, is that all of these blessings are connected to one another. And we should think of them in light of one another. And Moses has built the narrative so that they are uh, in relationship with one another. Um, also, let me, let, me ask, let me invite you next to look at the green lines. And, and you'll notice that the green lines are across from the purple lines. Okay, So this thing is co color-coded. And, and, and here, what I'm suggesting to you is that um, the blessing is being worked out by the seed. So the green line is about the seed. And seed is green because you get new life growth, right? That's the, that's the thinking here. And so in Genesis 11, 10 through 26, you have this genealogy that focuses on the line of descent of, of Shem flowing down from Abraham, going from Abraham down uh, to Noah, uh, Noah's son Shem. Um, and then, uh, so, so creation and God's blessing in creation is being worked out through this line of descent, which is not, the way, not what we would expect, but... What it, what, it, what it teaches us is that in the book of Genesis, when we read about a child being born, we should think things like, God is keeping his promise. God is keeping alive this line of descent. God is being faithful to what he said he would do, which is not, that's not what we're typically inclined to think when we, when, we, when we read in Genesis of a child being born. But I'm suggesting to you that that's exactly what is happening. So... Your next purple line, Genesis 12, 1 through 9, is set across from Genesis 21 and 22. And Genesis 21 is where Isaac is born. Genesis 22 is where Abraham offers Isaac up. And then God brings uh, the substitutionary ram in place of Isaac. And then after uh, Isaac is delivered from that sacrificial moment, God then speaks the blessing over Abraham in Genesis 22, 17, and 18. And he tells him, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and your seed will possess the gate of his enemies. And in your seed will all the families of the earth be blessed. So the line of descent is continued with Isaac. Isaac, remarkably, is offered up as a sacrifice, and then the blessing is reiterated. Um, you'll notice that in 25.20 through 26.5, just a little way down from that, you've got another green line. And that green line pertains to Rebekah's children struggling in her womb, the birth of Jacob and Esau. So again, you've got a barren woman, Rebekah. Sarah was barren for 25 years before Isaac was born. Rebekah was barren for 20 years before Jacob and Esau were born. And now at last she's having a child. And then at the beginning of chapter 26, the promise is communicated to Isaac. So the, the line of descent, the seed... And the promise, they're going together. And that green line stands across from the purple line, God's promise uh, to Jacob that we looked at in, in Genesis chapter 35. So this means, this means that the promise God made at the beginning in Genesis 3.15 depends upon marriage. It depends upon these patriarchs having a wife and it depends upon those patriarchs, those wives of those patriarchs, having 
children. And I didn't talk about this yet, but I'm going to say it now. Uh, in, in the scriptures, the world is not a, a, a non-sacred place that just evolved and came out of nothing and has no ultimate significance. No, uh, symbolically speaking, in the scriptures, the world is a cosmic temple. This is a place where God, God built his dwelling place, and he means to inhabit it with those who represent him. And, and what this means is that as God's image bearers, human beings are profoundly significant. And the very salvation of the world in the book of Genesis depends upon marriage. The marriage of one man to one woman. And for that promise to continue and be realized as the seed eventually comes, you have to have childbirth. So I hope what you hear me saying here is that for a woman to be a woman and to have babies is profoundly significant. So significant that the salvation of the world depends. I think this is why Paul mentions it in 1 Timothy chapter 2. She shall be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and hope and so forth. The world depends upon, upon people embracing what God says marriage is. The world depends upon women embracing their role as women and having babies in the line of descent. And if you were the enemy, if you were Satan, and you wanted to undermine God's kingdom, and you wanted to undermine God's program, and you wanted to try to keep God from saving the world, what would you do? I think you'd probably attack marriage. You'd probably try to distort and pervert people's thoughts about marriage you'd probably try to de destroy the very existence of the institution of marriage if you're really trying to overthrow God. There, there are many thinkers that Truman details in this book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, who tried to do just that. I think I know where they got the idea. Okay, so we got... We got creation, we got blessing and seed. Uh, the purple lines are about God's blessing. The green lines are about uh, the seed. And, I, and I, what I'm suggesting to you is that very often those are on the outer edges of these literary structures that we find in the book of Genesis. You'll notice that within the purple and green lines, there are blue lines. And, and those blue lines are about sin and enmity. Sin and enmity is what the blue lines are about. I just picked the color blue. I don't have a, you know, a mnemonic device. Maybe, some of, maybe somebody can think of something clever uh, to tie blue with. Anyway, uh, sin and enmity is what's going on there. And, and from 2.4 to 4.26, you know the sin there, right? They sin, they eat the forbidden fruit in chapter 3. Chapter 4, Cain kills Abel. Uh, 10.1 through 11.9, really the sin and enmity I'm focusing on there is the building of the Tower of Babel. Um, and then uh, you'll see how 12, 10 through 20 is the first time Abraham tells the sister fib. And then 21 through 18, he does it again. Both times, he jeopardizes the line of descent. He puts his wife in jeopardy. He puts in jeopardy the, the, the fact that Isaac can come into the world by, by risking uh, Sarah. And then uh, Isaac does the same thing in chapter 26. Uh, the line reads, Isaac deceives Philistines and has strife. Well, the way he deceives the Philistines is because he tells them that 
Uh, his wife, Rebecca, is actually his sister. He, he does the same thing his father had done. And then in chapter 34, that's where um, Dinah is assaulted. And uh, then the, the sons of Jacob, uh, Levi and Simeon, uh, they put the, the, uh, the Shechemites, the Hivites, under the ban. Um, so those, you'll see how you get the green and purple lines, and then you get the blue lines. And every one of those is dealing with uh, sin on the part of God's people and also enmity that is introduced between God's people and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent, Cain, murders Abel. The seed of the serpent, Egypt, Pharaoh, seizes Sarah. The seed of the serpent, the, the Philistines, they seize first Sarah and then they seize Rebekah. And then the seed of the serpent, the, the Shechemites, they rape Dinah, and then they're opposed to uh, what, what God is doing through, through Jacob. We're going to see in the next unit of text, in 37 through 50, and this is surprising, um, the seed of the serpent there turn out to be Joseph's brothers who sell him into slavery. Uh, we, we don't expect the seed of the serpent to be the, the children of Israel, but that's what turns out to be the case. So I would invite you to, to, to reflect on what's happening here in, in these repeated instances of enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. What is, what is Satan and what are his people doing? Well, one thing they're doing in chapter 11 is they're building their tower. And their tower is almost like a mountain that is intended to take them, they, you know, they want to build a tower into heaven. They want to build a mountain and they want to ascend the mountain and, and presumably the idea is they want to re-enter the presence of God in their way on their terms. And, and this is in direct opposition to what God actually wants from his people. They're, they're, they're pursuing their end, they're doing it their way, and then when you look at their ways, what do we see from them? Well, we see murder, Cain murders Abel. We see lies, Cain lies, uh, and, and then all through uh, we, we see an unwillingness to speak the truth from the seed of the serpent. Jesus, in John 8, says to his opponents, he says to them, you are of your father the devil, he was a murderer from the beginning, and he is the father of lies. And, and that's what con we consistently see from those who are at enmity with God and his people. And then we also see sexual deviancy from them. Uh, Pharaoh wants to add Sarah to his harem. Um, Shechem thinks that he can just take what he wants whenever he wants it. And, 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 and then, uh, I didn't put this blue... But I could have put, um, if I could have broken out Genesis 6, uh, the early part of Genesis 6, when the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, we could have put that blue as well, where, as, as I understand the text, these, these rebellious heavenly beings uh, pursued deviant sexual relations with human women. Now, um, our next, our next uh, color here is red and orange. And you can see how chapters 13 and 14 are orange, chapter 18 and 19 are, are 
read, and that's so that that's to tie in your thinking 18 and 19 with 27 and 28, which are also red, and 13 and 14 with 32 and 33, which are orange. But all of those are dealing with family deliverance. This is remarkable. In, in, each, of these, in each of these cases, um, Abraham delivers Lot in chapter 14. He intercedes for Lot in chapter 18, and Lot is delivered from the destruction of, of Sodom. And then even though um, Jacob is not acting righteously in chapters 27 and 28, God is working family deliverance through Jacob, this uh, heel grasper, uh, in, in chapters 27 and 28. And then in chapters 32 and 33, when God brings Jacob back to the land, there, there is a reconciliation with Esau. And we'll see more family deliverance when we get into the Joseph story, as Joseph not only provides food for his family, but also forgives his brothers and brings about reconciliation between the brothers. So what we see from this theme in the book of Genesis, this theme of of family deliverance, is that God is mercifully keeping his promises. And as he mercifully keeps his promises, he's also giving us pictures of the one to come. He's depicting what Christ is going to accomplish before it comes to pass. There's a related theme, and and that's in the center in chapters 15, 16, and 17, and chapters 29 through 31. It's in the center of these two two broad sections, and and that theme has to do with with marital strife. Um, You'll remember in chapter 16, uh, Abraham goes into Hagar. In chapters 29 and 30, you have Jacob's wives bickering over who's going to have access to him and who's going to have more children, and, and there's all this family strife and marital difficulty. And then in chapters 44 and 45, uh, you get Joseph really testing his brothers, and this whole pattern of, of marital strife and family strife is overcome as Joseph astonishingly forgives his brothers. Um, th- this, too, at the if we go back to the first one, you could put that, that marital strife in chapter 6 with those sons of God and daughters of men again there at the, at the center of that unit. So here, here's what I'm, I'm proposing to you. Moses has structured his narrative so that you get the same kinds of things at the same point as you move to the center of these literary units. You get uh, blessing and seed on the outer realms and then you get sin and enmity, and then you get family strife and marital strife and deliverance and salvation in the center of these, of these units. So how, how do we respond to all this? Now, we're in Genesis 36, and I, let me just draw your attention to the fact that um, in Genesis 36, you, you two, tw- two times get the phrase, these are the generations of, 36.1, these are the generations of Esau, that is Edom, and then 36.9, these are the generations of Esau. And I'm, I think that these correspond to the two instances of these are the generations of in chapter 25. 25.12, these are the generations of Ishmael. 25.19, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. And so it's, 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 it's a pillar. It's like, a, it's like an architectural pillar, this list of names. And what, is, what does Genesis 36 tell us? Well... Uh, one thing it tells us is that God is keeping his promises. You remember God said to Abraham, 
I'm going to make you a great nation, and he's doing that through Jacob. Uh, He's also said, kings, Abraham, Genesis 17, kings will come from you. And in Genesis 36, we read of how long before there were any kings in Israel, there were all these kings who descended from Abraham in Edom. Um, So Genesis 36, 31, these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom, descendants of Esau, before any king reigned over the Israelites. And that's that's an interesting observation because it, it's telling us that the, this line of descent from Abraham that is not chosen, that doesn't represent the people of God, it's almost like they're getting a realization of the promises of God before the people of God do. And the world sometimes seems that way. It sometimes seems that the seed of the serpent are enjoying something like the kingdom of God here and now, And meanwhile, the people of God, I mean, look at 37.1, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Jacob doesn't have any kings. He doesn't have any, all these descendants yet. And and he's he's almost a stranger in the land of promise. Uh, He's in the land of his father's sojournings. And, And I think Moses means to teach us to wait with patience and hope and faith in response to this kind of thing. Now, broadly speaking, in response to everything that I've said to this point about how the culture is thinking about the world as decreated, not created, desacralized, not a sacred place, I, I want to I just state some things that we deny. We, we deny some things, and then I'm going to state some things that we affirm, some things that we hold to be true on the basis of the Scriptures. So, we deny that human beings are only or even primarily to be inwardly directed, which is what this whole psychologized approach to our lives would communicate to us. It would tell us that the biggest and most important things about you are what you feel on the inside. We deny that. We think that we should be outwardly. We think we live for God. We think we, we, we live for his glory, that he's given us things to do, whether we feel good about those things or not. We have responsibilities. So so we deny that we are only or primarily even inward. We deny that we are primarily dictated by our, our sexual desires. So we deny what Freud thinks about the world. We deny that all of life should be political. And we deny that the Bible and all of its teachings are oppressive, okay? So we just categorically reject these claims that that are current in our culture. And I haven't haven't talked about this, but I just want to throw this out out here and and point you to this book that I've been alluding to by Carl Truman. He, He talks about the way that people who embrace things like what the Bible teaches will be regarded by the revolutionaries as having embraced a false consciousness. Oh, you think that's moral to be one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. You think that's the only moral thing because you've embraced false consciousness. And and we just reject that. We reject that to walk with God is to embrace false consciousness. As if, if, if we were to be true to ourselves, we would somehow rise above 
the Bible's teachings and recognize that the Bible is really introducing oppressive ways of, of, of living. So we deny all that. We affirm. We affirm that the world is a cosmic temple, a sacred place. We affirm that humans are made in the image of God and they have intrinsic value as image bearers of God. All humans, from conception forward, a human being has intrinsic value as an image bearer. We affirm that marriage is a creation ordinance. We affirm that we don't find our meaning by searching within ourselves and being true and authentic to ourselves. We affirm that we are given meaning by the living God. We affirm that there is an absolute morality that pertains to us. We affirm that we have an ultimate purpose in the world. What is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And now, uh, in conclusion, I want to just summarize briefly what we learn from the book of Genesis on the basis of, of what I've suggested to you about these literary structures that we see in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis teaches us that God's blessing, the purple line, will overcome the sin and enmity, the blue lines. Even though there's family strife, uh, the, the, uh, the center points of these structures, and a lot of alienation, even though there's family strife and alienation, God's blessing is going to overcome all of this. All the consequences of sin, God's blessing will overcome. God's word of promise, the, the line of descent of the seed, will be maintained all the way to the coming of the Lord Jesus. And by means of his word, God is going to bring about a deliverance, the orange and red lines, from the floodwaters of God's wrath. We think of the flood in Genesis 6. We think of baptism. God is going to bring about deliverance. And God will bring about an exodus from slavery to sin and slavery to the seed of the serpent. God will bring about an exodus, a deliverance from these things. And that exodus is, is previewed in Abraham's life. It's previewed in Jacob's life. And then we read about it in the book of Exodus. It's fulfilled. That, these are prefiguring pictures that are fulfilled in what God accomplishes in Christ. And God will further bring about a restoration that allows us to re-enter his own life-giving presence. Uh, in, in various places in the Bible, places like Ezekiel 28, Psalm 15, Psalm 24, other places, um, there's this mountain of God that is spoken of. Psalm 24, who will ascend the hill of the Lord? It's the, it's the true archetype that the, Babylon, the, the Babylonians, the Babylonites, are trying to accomplish by means of their tower. And the Bible is saying that by what God promises to do, he's going to make it so that his people can ascend the hill of the Lord and re-enter his life-giving presence. God will bring about a restoration to his own life-giving presence, and he's going to bring this about by providing a substitutionary lamb in fulfillment of Genesis 22, a brother who will give himself in the place of the guilty, which is what we'll see when Judah places himself in Benjamin's stead 
when we get to that in a few chapters. And this will involve forgiveness from the Lord of the whole world, which is what is anticipated when Joseph forgives his brothers, as, as we'll see as we work toward this in coming chapters. So all this to say, Genesis teaches us who we are, what the world is, what marriage is, what transgressions are, and how God is going to bring about redemption from the way that we've brought sin and enmity into the world. And all of this is, is truly and completely brought to, brought to fulfillment through what God does in Christ Jesus. If you're here this morning and you are not somebody who follows Jesus, we want to invite you to join us in following him. We want to invite you to join us in, in understanding who you are and where you live and what's wrong with that place and what God has done to set it right by getting your ultimate meaning from the scriptures and allowing the scriptures, this ancient book, to inform everything about you. We want to invite you to become a disciple of Jesus. And the way that you do that is you, you allow yourself to say to the scriptures, what you say is sin is sin. What you say is righteousness is righteousness. And then you embrace the idea that, yes, I have transgressed against the holy and living God, and I recognize that that is wrong, and I recognize that it would bring upon me his righteous indignation, his wrath, and his punishment. And then you further allow yourself to believe that when Christ died on the cross, he took your penalty. He died in your place. And if you'll embrace those ideas, and if you'll submit yourself to King Jesus, you can be restored to the life-giving presence of God. And you can believe that one day you'll be raised from the dead and you will have the opportunity to dwell in a new heaven and new earth that is a better, a better than ever garden of Eden in the presence of God. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would equip us by your word to speak with, with salty words into our culture, words that give flavor, words that preserve, words that, that communicate your life-giving power because they're your words, Lord. Give us the backbone to speak the truth. Give us the ability to think accurately and well about what our contemporaries believe and how it is at odds with what the scriptures teach. Lord, we pray that your word would take root within us and that it would bear fruit. We pray that what we believe about where the world came from and who we are in the story that you are creating in this world we pray that that would result in us living in accordance with the way the scriptures teach. We pray that it would enable us to overcome temptation. And Lord, we pray that as the waves of our culture crash upon us, 
from the songs on the radio to the commercials on the television to the way that all of our contemporaries seem to think and talk. Lord, we pray that that because of your word, we would be like a mighty rock on the shore that the waves break against. Lord, we pray that your truth would, would keep us to the end. We pray that you would enable us to be those who are wise, those who shine like the stars and who lead many to righteousness. And we pray this, Lord, for your glory, for the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.